Apple Presents Events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guests, founder and CEO of Kind, Daniel Lubetsky, and our moderator, Kelly Hoey. Thank you, thank you. Um, it is great to be back here at the Apple Store in Soho, and I am thrilled to be talking with Daniel about his new book, Do the Kind Thing, and about this very interesting entrepreneurial journey that you have had. Um, two decades of ups and downs, and you detail them in your book, not always the best of times. Um, for you as an entrepreneur, what are you lessons for other entrepreneurs who are getting started from all of your experience? Um, I guess one of the lessons is don't give up too early because when Kind launched was probably one of the toughest times in our history at Kind. Or in, Right before Kind, we had launched a company called PeaceWorks, which for 10 or 11 years had really, really dreamt of trying to use business to bring Arabs and Israelis to do business together and to break stereotypes and uh, connect with one another. But as you mentioned, it was 11 years of a lot of mistakes. At right when we were launching Kind was one of the darkest times. We had basically lost one of our lines and lost about a million dollars of investment. And it, nobody would have faulted us if we had just closed up the shop and just gone back to our other lives. And we just believed in it and we turned the corner and from like not being able to make payroll, just kind of just basically took off. We, Learn from those 10 or 11 years of mistakes, and uh, since then, then Kind's been able to grow really, really nicely. So the opposite lesson is don't jump in to launch a venture before you're ready, because you can also make those 11 years of mistakes. And um, I think in the life of an enterprise, whether it's a social or business enterprise, it's really smart to separate the what I call the research and development or skeptical phase from the evangelist phase. In the first phase, you have to be very critical of yourself. You have to really, really ask whether you've got what it takes, whether your idea makes sense, whether you have a unique selling proposition, whether you have the financing necessary, and whether people really want your product or service. And you have to be comfortable stepping away and saying, no, I'm going to revisit it or not do it if it's not meant to be. And during that phase, you have to really ask the toughest questions about competition and, and really, really be earnest with yourself. If you go through this trial by intellectual fire and are certain that this is meant to be, that you really got something that you are committed to see through, then at that point you basically flip a switch in your mind and in your body and in your heart and you say, nobody's going to stop me. And then you start with the evangelist phase and then you just go all for nothing and you can't be stopped. And you have to still be absorbing data points to pivot and adjust if you're doing something wrong, but you have to have that staying force and commitment to see it through. If you don't separate your faces, you might spend the first you know, many years just making mistakes and running out of fuel, or you might be giving up too early when it's the time for you to just um, stick with your beliefs. And it's that stamina, because as you noted, 11 years uh, with your first venture, and you detail the good times and the bad, uh, the tenacity, the persistence, the pounding, literally the pounding of the pavement. <laughs> I'm picturing you up and down streets in New York getting people to buy your product. 
but kind is successful now. So what's the greatest challenge you're facing at this time? Um, I think part of the reason why kind is successful is because we really, really, Kelly's not exaggerating at all. She's actually understating all of our failures. But we made so many mistakes in the first 11 years. And I held those failures close to my heart and decided to learn from them. And I think kind has benefited from learning what not to do in, in, in those instances. So staying focused. And, and that's a lot of what the book is about, is drawing from those years of failures and years of success and contrasting them and going through 10 different uh, pillars of the values that we live by in our company that have helped us grow. Um, I think the challenges for me today are the things that those first 11 years of failure didn't prepare me for. So things that are new because I could have not anticipated them. So we, back then, were running the business from the basement of my building. Literally. Uh, my friend used to joke that if you had to get to this windowless basement, he introduced the finance department, which was the trash compactor, and the <laughs> operations department, which was the laundromat, and then you got to, uh, to the basement. And uh, today we have 500 team members, and we're in 150,000 stores. And the challenges that we face is maintaining our values and our culture while we grow, never uh, losing sight of what brought us here and of, of uh, making sure that we maintain the brand promise and making sure that all of our team members who now are kind ambassadors in a very real sense live by those values and, the, and that as we grow, they continue to transmit those values. So I think that's the biggest opportunity for us to really, really make sure that uh, kind as a philosophy and as a movement lives inside all of our team members. And I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna talk to you later about, about culture, but one of the things I want you to talk about is the power of thinking with and, because that is something from day one for you has been core to kind as a company and as a brand and as, a, as an, in, such an innovator in, in the healthy snack food area. Yeah, um, it, was, it was even from day one there, but I didn't realize or had not been able to distill it into what that philosophy is. At that time, I was just doing it, but I didn't realize that I was doing it. But Kelly's referring to a very, very core tenet that informs all of the rest of the work we do, which is about challenging false compromises. Instead of thinking with or, I have to do this, or do that, questioning whether that's really true. Do you really need to make those sacrifices? And sometimes you'll find that you do need to make those, but many times, very often, our brain has taken shortcuts to get us into a decision and has not really thought through sufficiently whether you actually, with a little bit extra work up front, can actually achieve two seemingly incompatible goals. So in the case of kind, it's, of course, making something that was tasty but also nutritious, so delicious and nutritious, or making something that was wholesome with ingredients you could see and pronounce but that was also convenient to travel with, or a company that had a deep social mission that also had, that was economically sustainable. So the, the key to thinking with and is being able to isolate those assumptions that are holding you back and saying, why is this true or why not do it differently? If you're able to isolate the underlying premises that are making you think that you can't do two things at once, sometimes you're able to uh, uh, Knock them out, knock yeah. them off. I'm very bad with my expressions. In the book, I make fun also of my, what I call Danielisms, where I- I was hoping we'd get a few out in this conversation. My, uh, my 
expressions, but you get the point. You're, you're able to then try to uh, to uh, tackle. There we well, go. To tackle uh, those false compromises. So. You are a social entrepreneur. You always have been. This is not, you know, Daniel coming to the party late, late on, you know, the fashionable thing to be a social entrepreneur. What does that mean to you? Well, I, when you say you've always have been, when, when I started the first company, PeaceWorks, right after law school, I didn't know, the, the term social entrepreneurship didn't exist, but I did have people that had been doing this work on my board that were mentors, like, Ben Cohen, by the way, the gentleman over there looks a little bit like Ben from Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> but I've been told not to point because this is being on a podcast so people can't see us. But just imagine a very handsome man over there. Uh, but, uh, but Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's and other incredible people had been doing work to use business for social change way before I came onto it. And I stumbled into it because I really cared a lot about ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. I still do. I still do a lot of work about that because my father, I'm a confused Mexican Jew trying to get Arabs and Israelis to work together. So people wonder where this crazy guy came from. But my dad was a Holocaust survivor. He uh, was in a concentration camp in Dachau when he was a little kid. And when I was a little kid, he talked to me about what he went through. And that really marked me and impacted me and made me promise to myself that I would try to build bridges between people to prevent what happened to him from happening again to others. So that's how we started PeaceWorks. That's how Kind and Mayette and One Voice and the other ventures that I've helped start. Always a common thread is trying to build bridges and uh, help people discover the humanity of the other. Did I even answer what you were asking me? I don't know. What, I think that explains started. why you're a social entrepreneur, that your companies need to have meaning and need to be more than just commerce. Yeah. So, I, so now, thanks for reminding me of the question. The, I did it with PeaceWorks because it just made sense to use business to bring Arabs and Israelis together. And the premise was that if Israelis are trading with Palestinians and Turks and Egyptians, then Israel's neighbors would have an incentive to make peace with Israel because they would be profiting from those relations, Israelis and Palestinians and Turks and Egyptians and Jordanians would shatter stereotypes of each other as they traded with one another. And, you know, 10 or 11 years later, once I had developed the whole uh, thing with PeaceWorks and I was trying to create kind, I didn't want to just stop at making a delicious product uh, that was nutritious. I also wanted to do something that would be um, a small contribution towards making this world a little bit kinder, towards continuing on the footsteps of connecting humans with one another, even if it's in modern society. And uh, that's how we started absorbing it 10, 11 years ago. And the, the other ventures that I've done follow that. But uh, I did actually, I think, stumble into it because I was very passionate about business and about ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. And that basically put that bug in me about trying to combine well, the power of markets with, with the potential impact of on society. Well, as you noted in the book, at one point you thought, you know, to heck with business, that you would just do a not-for-profit as a full-time vocation, and right. you said, no, I can do more as a business person. Well, uh, I, I, I didn't that, say that. I, I actually, or someone said that I actually too, yeah. didn't live by the end philosophy, and I, I, at one juncture, when we got an offer to sell kind, and it was a very attractive offer, and I thought, wow, if I take the money off the table, I can then focus full-time on you know building bridges in the Middle East, where, which, as you guys know, deeply needs it. 
and, uh, and in many other parts of the world. I, I think the disconnect between humans has been in some ways as high as it has ever been yeah. with the rise of yeah. the Islamic State. And it's, it's a very big challenge for all of us in society. And one of my uh, board members and mentors at the time, Jim Hornthal, said, Daniel, you don't need to choose between one or the other. This is your aunt philosophy, hello. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, if you maintain your business impact, you're going to probably be able to get the, here comes another bad expression, foot at the stage, door at the foot, you're going to be foot able to door. foot in the door, into, get invited into other, um, into other events and venues. And even though you don't know how to speak English, because you sell kind words, they might invite you to some of these places. Yeah, you, they want the business people in the door, you know. Um, I want to say you come knocking and the door is a not-for-profit. Everyone has a, you know, suspicion yeah, of why, why you're there. Yes, exactly. So I was traveling recently, and I want to talk to you about what the kind brand stands for, but I was traveling recently, and uh, yes, I was eating a kind bar in LaGuardia Airport, and the woman next to me kind of nudged me and said, as I'm reading the package intently, she said, are you trying to figure out what you're eating and how unhealthy it is? And I, was actually, I said to her, no, actually, I'm going to be interviewing the founder. This is what they stand for, and this is what it says. And, and I went through everything that I knew. But what does the kind brand stand for? Um, above all, it's transparency, which doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we are earnest with ourselves within, inside the company, among our team members, with our suppliers, with our trading partners, with our community, with our consumers, with our uh, business partners. Um, I think transparency is a very, very core tenet of, of who we are. I think it just comes naturally to us to just be ourselves and just be honest and earnest. I think part of our success is that. And transparency is not just transparent wrappers where you can see what you get, and it's not just that you, you see the ingredients that you can see and pronounce. Transparency was also a choice in how we name our products, which people subconsciously, I, see, I think, relate to. And when they see our boxes, we don't use stylized pictures of the bars. We actually use either actual images of the product or, or, or no images at all. We will not like uh, do stylized pictures, because for us, it's really important that we be exactly delivering to the consumer what they expect. And in the names of our products, uh, we have to hold back from our creativity and just be direct. So a product that would, has dark chocolate, cherries, and cashew is called very creatively dark chocolate cherry cashew <laughs> instead of black forest cake or supreme la mode cushy cushy or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and it's a hard challenge for marketers because we want to be creative. But we felt that in the market there was a lot of hoopla and a lot of like blah, blah, and the consumers just get desensitized to it. So in everything we do, we use straight lines in our packaging. We don't use too many textures. We, we, we use minimalist packaging. And uh, so transparency is one of the values. Of course, our, our motto is do the kind thing for your body, for your taste buds, and for your world. So the, the three pillars of our brand is about eating ingredients that are nutritionally rich, that are you can see and pronounce that it's real food um, that's delicious where you don't have to sacrifice you know, taste. That it has. A lot of people uh, ask the other question. They're like, wow, I wouldn't eat that. That, like, that looks too healthy. And, and then you have to like, get them to try it and to see that actually you don't have to sacrifice taste to eat healthfully. And then the third pillar is to do the kind thing for your world, which is the work we try to do to inspire kindness, 
both with small acts of kindness where we try to, we have a lot of creative ways to try to surprise people with small acts of kindness or to celebrate people that we find doing an act of kindness towards another, as well as with big kind acts where the community joins us in triggering big kinds acts for those who need it most. Is there any of those that stand out? Every day, because if you take the six line, sometimes things get ugly there because it's very, very <laughs> packed. You, you know what I mean. You're I, nodding. I've done that line for years. It's, yep. uh, it's uh, you know, lately, it scares me. I don't know if you guys watched, um, what was it, the, uh, the Batman movie where the Joker creates these social experiments and tests whether people will behave like human beings in tough conditions. On the six line, people would have failed miserably. <laughs> Because they like they are didn't, just we mean didn't need to a each movie. other. You didn't need a movie. You could just give someone a subway pass and they'd have I that know, experiment. But it's, but it's scary because, you know, we're going to face much bigger challenges as humanity yeah. in the coming years with, uh, you know, climate change, nuclear proliferation, resource scarcity. There's droughts in the United States, in California. There's been problems of food scarcity across the world. I think we're going to face major disruptions in the coming years that are scary for my children. And the only way we're going to be able to tackle them is if we recognize our shared humanity and work in this together. And so, you know, look, after starting with such a big point, what I'm going to say sounds so senseless because I'm starting with just one little act of kindness. But I think that's how it starts. But, you know, we have these cards called Kind Awesome cards. Has any of you guys ever gotten one? I could lie and say in the podcast, everybody's raising their hand, but nobody has gotten it apparently. But this, uh, if, you, if you ever get one, I think it's a really nice feeling and you really deserve it. If somebody treats somebody with kindness and goes above and beyond, like you help carry a stroller for somebody else up and down the stairs, or you stand up and let an elderly person get a seat, or you just stand up and get somebody a seat, then uh, you said, you know, that was kind awesome. And in appreciation for your kindness, we, you go to this website, enter this code, and we send you a couple kind bars. But more important, we also send you another card so that the next person that does a kind act to you or to somebody else, you can then celebrate their act of kindness. So, so have you ever given one of those out on the sixth train? Yeah, I, I actually managed to find, <laughs> I managed to find that, that angel pretty much every day. But I'm looking out yeah. uh, on the way in or on the way out. And once a woman... Um, started crying and I'm like I thought that I was stepping on her foot or something but no she's like you know you really really touched me because I had a very very tough day and thank you for noticing thank you for noticing that it's something nice and it really is I, I, I was uh, a couple of weeks ago in the zoo with my kids and there was this uh, older woman with her son I'm sorry with, with her granddaughter and she was being really sweet to, to my kids and her granddaughter was like embarrassed. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, my grandmother, she just talks to everybody. Talking to I, strangers. And then I gave her a card and you could see how proud the grandmother was and she looked at her granddaughter and the granddaughter was proud and then suddenly the granddaughter got the message, it's okay for us to get outside our comfort zone and be nice to each other. It's okay for us to you know, take that courage because a lot of us associate kindness with weakness. We have a, a line called strong and kind not just because it has strength of the protein from kind ingredients, but because we wanted to communicate that it takes strength to be kind, that, that it's in those moments when somebody's being bullied or when some stranger has a bad situation, you just don't want to invade their space with that little touch of kindness 
to that stranger can really make a huge difference in their lives and can really, really sometimes impact the course of history when an enemy just swallows their pride and just takes that step to understand the other side. So it takes strength to be kind. It takes strength to empathize with the other. And, and that's a lot of what we're trying to celebrate through all these social experiments that we do. The strong and kind is my favorite. I'm just saying for the record. Thank you. For the podcast, for the record, my favorite. Um, my guess is there's going to be a lot of people listening, watching this conversation now and when it's up on iTunes who are going to want to come and work for you because this is kind of a good company and you're kind of a fabulous CEO. So what do you look for in talent? We, first of all, nobody works for me. In all seriousness, we, they work with me. And it's, if, if anybody says I work for you or they I have a, a team member, Bob, who's about... 30 years young, or older than me, and maybe 20, I don't know, Bob, 20, some <laughs> older than me, okay, just older than me. And, uh, and he always says, hey, boss, and I'm like, Bob, I'm not your boss, I'm your team member, but one of our values in the company is ownership and resourcefulness, and everybody that joins our company full-time has a stake in the company, a financial stake in the company, but it's also just a philosophy of all of us working together, and definitely part of why we've succeeded is because I have people far smarter than me doing, as you can tell, uh, doing their, the jobs that they're meant to do, you know. So for marketing, we have the best marketing people and so on and so forth. What do I look for in all of my team members? I think one is uh, the ability to be honest with themselves, to be introspective. I think a great sign of potential growth is when you can criticize yourself, where you can analyze yourself. It's not always easy, it's not always pleasant. But if you build that into yourself and every day you're like monitoring how you can improve as a human being, you're going to grow. And if you're defensive and can't deal with criticism of yourself by yourself, then it limits your ability to grow. So introspection and ability to analyze yourself is good. I don't mean, you know, Woody Allen, like, you know, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> within the proper dose. Uh, and then... Um, because I kind of approach the Woody Allen uh, side of it. But uh, I also look for, for transparency. But most of all, I really look for nice people that are good human beings, that, that are enjoyable to work with, that have real values. We look deep for, for the authentic person that's just a good human being. Uh, and, and commitment to excellence, people that are ambitious, that are going to work hard, and that are going to give it their best. Whatever that is, just do the best you can. And it's interesting, I want to say what, as you said, team members, that they really approach it as a team in the sense that if they're going to leave the company, they need to be transparent about that, and they are a team member and that they hire their replacement. I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk more about that? This is one of the policies that people find most fascinating, which is, I think, a statement of how sad our corporate culture is, because today, the, the standard is that you just surreptitiously either apply for a job or cut off somebody and then they're given two weeks notice at best. Sometimes that moment they're shown with a security guard with that cardboard box where they have to fill it up and they have to walk out. And for the life of me, I don't understand that. In a case where somebody's been a criminal or engaged in sexual harassment or being negative and disrupting or engages in fraud, then absolutely show them the door Take legal action. But in 99.9% .9 of the cases, you're dealing with good human beings 
who you hired, who you took the time to interview. And so most likely, these are good people that are trying their best. And the biggest problem in this dynamics is that there's lack of trust and lack of transparency. And that lack of trust creates lack of transparency, and that lack of communications leads to people just doing things unilaterally rather than through conversation. In what we try to achieve in our company, it's not always perfect. We don't always get it right because we're fighting against this corporate mentality. But what we try to encourage our community is that if anybody is unhappy about anything, you need to speak about it. If you as a team member find the environment is not working for you, speak up. Then we have a chance to fix it and not lose you. We invested a lot into bringing you in. We don't want to lose you. If, if you have someone that's reporting to you and they're not performing well, don't spare them the criticism. You're doing them a huge disservice. Talk to them and give them that feedback. I think most times if the team member and the person they report to communicate, they're going to solve almost all problems, almost all issues just through that. I've, I've seen it so many times. If for any reason it's not meant to be because the skill sets are not matching the needs or something, then what we do at Kind is try to encourage the team member to find something else in the company. And if that still doesn't work and you've tried everything, then we initiate a transition. And then the team member has time to start looking for a job while doing their own job. Why do they need to leave abruptly? If they're doing their job with excellence, are doing their best, it's not like it's a crisis. Continue to doing your job while you look for a job. Count on the person you report to as your reference, where they'll speak very honestly about all your strengths, because there are many. Otherwise, we would have not hired you in the first place. Find where your needs are and stuff. Find the right match. It's so much easier and more pleasant for you to help find your replacement, train that person, because you have all the knowledge for the job. It might not be perfect, but you've developed all of this knowledge, pass the baton on with excellence, and then everybody's better off. Now, it doesn't work always, but it, with my direct reports, it's worked like that for many years. I haven't had one person that reports directly to me that I can recall that this didn't work that way. And with my closest reports, they have a two-year notice, two-year requirement. Of course, it's an honor code. It's not enforceable. But it's an honor code where they need to let me know. And in exchange for that, I need to ensure that I will deepen their professional growth till the last day they leave. Because a lot of times when you're going to leave, then the, person, the company starts saying, all right, don't throw that responsibility at them. Pivot again. And so then people are not incentivized to just speak honestly. So it's very important that you keep growing that person, even reward them when they leave, if they leave with that excellence, that they leave the company in a better position than, than they started. You are going to have so many CVs on your desk tomorrow. <laughs> good, because we're growing fast, so we need good you need people. You need talent. You need talent. You need more awesome team members. So back to your book. Why is this the right time for you to write your book? Why now? Um, it never would have been the right time. Uh, it was very tough to find the time. Juliana, who's my chief of staff somewhere there, you know, suffered even more than me. There she is. <laughs> uh, but but I, I really passionately wanted to share the lessons of what got me there. I had so many people help me along the way. I mean, I didn't know anything about the food industry or about starting this type of businesses. And I learned it from others, and I wanted to give back to people that are starting their businesses or, or that want to think differently and uh, creatively and learn how to think with and. And I wanted to just share that with, with the community. I, I'm asked often to talk to people about advice, and I just don't find enough time to be able to do it. It's really, really hard for me to, to find the time. So this was, A, a way to give back. 
B, it was very important for me to share these tenets with my team because as we grow, I wanted them to own to the, own it. So I, I figured I would write it in a way that it, I could share with the community. And most important for our vision for what we want to become, become um, it was very important that we tell the story of what kind, what kind of aspiration of what it wants to become so that then our community can hopefully help join us on that journey. Uh, you can ask me, what do you want to become? So I'll tell you. Uh, That's the next question. What's next? Uh, <laughs> for us, we're very, very grateful that we have a great community that loves our products and they reward our obsession with quality and with quality ingredients by, with loyalty. We're the fastest growing healthy snack company in the US. We were named for two years in a row among the top 10 fastest growing companies in consumer product goods. Uh, last year we were the number one, this year I think we were number three in the entire US economy, which scares me a little bit about the state of the US economy. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but for us it's not, I mean, we, we do want to continue innovating in healthy snack foods and become the, the leading purveyor of healthy snacks. But for us, our dream, and this is by no means something we've achieved yet, but what we aspire to become is to transcend this definition of being a company or a product and evolve into something more, into a movement and a community and a state of mind where things like the kind awesome cards and kind causes we have on our website and a few other things that we're going to be launching in the coming months really elevate that sense of community and that feeling of oh wow, kindness is more front of mind for me. And when you connect with our product, you're not just eating a kind bar in the morning or kind healthy grain clusters with yogurt in the afternoon. You're also participating with us in the, all this, we, we call it the kind movement. And we have over, I think uh, now about close to a half a million members that help us in all of these experiments in trying to inspire kindness. And we do different things every, every month. And, uh, what we aspire to become is to transcend how people see a business or a nonprofit or a social enterprise into something that becomes a movement where people connect with us because we're not just giving them nourishing their bodies, but we're also nourishing their minds and their souls by trying to together make a small contribution to make this a kinder world. And, and I want to disclaim that we're not there yet. Obviously, most of you probably hadn't even heard about our social mission prior to either listening to this podcast or being here today. But that's our aspiration. That's what, that's what really turns me on. That's, I think, the next uh, frontier. That's awesome. All right, so I think we've got time for some questions. Okay, hi, um, I'm Sam, and I wanted to know, what would you tell your 18-year-old self? What would I tell my 18-year-old self? Wow. <laughs> I could find some Man, of those conversations I, I you I don't know that I'm allowed you. to talk about all of that stuff here. <laughs> Man, let me just take out these, these things about don't date this one, watch out for that one, those stuff. I, but you were, you, were, you were like a hustling entrepreneur from when you were a kid. Uh, I was. I was an entrepreneur. I think I would tell myself, uh, don't be so hard on yourself. But then again, being so hard on myself kind of is what pushed me to stay. So, so I think it's okay for you to push yourself. I think, you, I, I think this is what I would say. This is what I learned that helped me continue to have this drive without getting depressed. Because early on, and when you're, this is advice that should help almost everybody. Um, separate the professional criticism from the personal. Be hard on yourself in trying to become the best person you can be in your profession, 
but then create a wall where you don't invade your sense of who you are as a human being and you're not so tough on yourself. Like, if you have a failure, think introspectively, own up to it, do, do take that fall and, and, and reflect about it and, and, and learn from it and don't be afraid to embrace that failure and, and, and feel bad about what you did wrong but separate it from your personal self-worth and fulfillment. You are who you are regardless of your success. I'm not different than the Daniel at PeaceWorks that for 10, 11 years was going up and down the streets and like not succeeding. I mean, it was treacherous out there at the beginning and for a very long time. It was you thought you were going to be eating like tapenade for a long time. <laughs> and Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and I fortunately didn't know how hard it was till I looked back and I was so in love with the concept of PeaceWorks that I just, that purpose gave me that staying power. But there were so many, many lonely moments where I couldn't meet payroll, where I was afraid that I was not gonna be able to pay for my team member salaries, and I had to skip my own payroll. And it was, it was terrifying. And there were many moments which I detail in the book and what those lessons were, where I was making a lot of mistakes. And I think uh, it would have been okay for me to separate in those tough times, when you have those toughest moments, you really need to, I think what I do with my team is when they're succeeding a lot, I'm tough on them and I'm like, come on, you know, don't take it so easy. If you're not failing, it means you're not trying hard enough. But when you have a setback, I think, you know, pat yourself on the back, it's okay. It's okay because as long as you do your best, that's what matters. Hi, Daniel, how are you? Hi. I'm Bella. How did you come up with all unique flavors that you have? Um, is there a test kitchen job we can sign up for? It's a team, pro today is a slightly different process from the way it started. Uh, the way it started, I had one or two team members that I was working with and we were, we, we learned a lot from Australia where Fruit Not Bars were already uh, in existence and so we, adopted a lot of the concepts of ingredients you can see and pronounce from Australia, but then we adapted them to the United States and adopted things like cranberry almond and uh, dark chocolate cherry cashew and things that we felt would work in the US. So the Australian influence was like an almond apricot. A lot of people used to ask us, why apricot? They're not so popular in the US, but, uh, but our, our almond apricot product actually does really well. But in Australia, apricots are, are, are very, very popular. So we started there. But today, the way we do new product development, which is, I think, how you're asking, I am really fortunate to work with amazing people who are really creative. And what's most important is that we, and I try to help all of us think from the gut and not from the spreadsheets. In the food industry, a lot of what you see is meat to items. Because what happens is there is data that you now can see what's selling well. And the, these companies, IRI and Nielsen, sell data of what you guys are consuming to other food companies. And so the food companies say, oh, gluten-free, it's trending, let's do gluten-free. Oh, uh, these flavors are trending. And it's such a mistake to follow because then you're not yourself, you're just a follower, you're just a meat to item, and the consumer doesn't connect with your brand, doesn't know what you're about. And why is a consumer gonna buy the 20th brand that's doing the same thing all over, the 20th coconut water or the 20th thing like that? So I think what's important is to understand your brand and keep your brand promise and listen to your God. What would my brand want to do? You, talk, you literally, it sounds weird, but I, I have a conversation with kind inside myself. Man, back this guy is a freak. No, no, right, no, I have to go. Back to that Woody Allen moment. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that did sound very Woody Allen. But I really try to 
to, to connect with the brand and say, what, will we, what, what makes sense for Kind that in terms of products or new lines that we design would fit with our brand values, that would fit with what, what we stand for, ingredients you can see and pronounce, no compromises in terms of quality, premium. Can we deliver that experience in another category? Or when we're doing line extensions, take inspiration from going to a restaurant, from, from going to a farmer's market, from reading books and from learning from chefs. Don't take inspiration from, from the data. Not, not from spreadsheets. <laughs> no, yeah. not from spreadsheets. I know that face. Yes, you do. Hi, Daniel. I'm Maxie. I work at Labo. I loved the office hours you did with us. It was awesome. Um, I know Miss Kelly Hoey is doing some fabulous writing herself. And, you know, we hear often that a book is the new business card. So I'd love some advice from you of, you know, what advice you have for anyone looking to write a book? Um, if they feel like they have the story inside of them, how you did it and some of the lessons that you learned. Wow. Are you ever going to write another book? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say I'm not the best qualified person to answer this because I've only written one book. There are people that do this for a living. For me, it was a very important personal part of my journey, and I did it for the reasons that I laid out, and uh, I'm very blessed that I became a New York Times bestseller, but I would have loved writing it because I needed to do it. It was part of me, and it was what was important inside me. So I think you have to really, again, have a conversation with yourself because it's a choice. It takes a lot of time to do it well. You really need to invest a lot. I was fortunate that I had uh, Hannah Schoenberg help me write it. I wrote it, but the way we did it is she would interview me, transcribe all of the stories, write the first draft, and then I would own it and take a lot of time to make it in my voice. Uh, and she had all the perfect English. I messed it up on purpose. No, I'm joking. Uh, I write well because I went to law school, but I speak like a putz. Um, <laughs> But um, but it's I think a very, it's a very personal book. It's a very personal book, and I think what I wanted to do is make it personal, make it flow by having enough of a plot that you could draw the business lessons within the plot. But I think you know, I would have not been able to do this without an, a, a great agent who guided me. Jennifer Joel is just incredible, and she knows this world two hundred times better than I will. I think this world is for good or for bad, very specialized. And even if, if designing a beverage, forget about you know, anything outside of the food world, I wouldn't try to design a beverage myself. I, when I look at a healthy snack that somebody's selling or that we're designing, after 21 years of doing this, I understand if it has high likelihood of working or not. But when I look at a beverage, I don't get it. When I look at a book or when I look at a clothing line or a technology, I'm clueless. So I, I, I know what I don't know, and I think if you're going to try to get advice about whether to write the book, I would try to get someone who's an expert, an agent, to either be your agent or to just talk to you and give you advice about what they think. And um, It's a very tough world. You know? Writing a book is, is uh, it's not easy because... Well, you're such, also, you're such a social person, and, and writing a book is a very... Yeah. isolating process and that's and that's another part of it it wasn't as isolating to me because Hannah and I had so much fun it was about 40 <laughs> percent interview and then 60 percent just talking about life uh, now I confess Juliana now that the project is done yeah yeah um, <laughs> well I'll talk but, to Juliana afterwards and, and, but, and see uh, if this is but right I, but you know the cool thing about writing a book is you learn so much about yourself I mean these 10 tenets 
I didn't start the book knowing those 10 tenets of prison. I mean, I obviously was living with those values, or I was aspiring to live with those values, and I was doing those things. But, you know, uh, being able to synthesize what it stands for, it's being able to connect the dots of your journey, it's really fun. Uh, so I think that, that was very enjoyable. So the book is, um, can be downloaded on iTunes. And now we're, can we, how many more questions are we allowed? We're going to take two more questions. Um, so we're going to go back here. But the, the book, is, book is on iBooks. I want to make sure people have this information. You are on Twitter um, as at Dan Lubb. Um, and Kind Snacks is... I think at, at Kind Snacks. At, at Kind Snacks. Um, where can they find about and your... We're on Facebook and Instagram. And, and all do that the good kind stuff. Things and, the book and, and then, and then I'm talking to the... To the you know, know, hero the queen, of, the queen of all this stuff. Of this stuff. Um, and where can they find about, um, you mentioned your, your community. Where can they find information on the kind, kind community? Kindmovement.com. Kindmovement.com. Or you can go to kindsnacks.com and it'll take you. But if you go directly to kindmovement.com, I really would love for you to visit that site. What are some of the challenges you face, especially as an entrepreneur, one of the tough things is getting funding, you know, when you start in the company. What are some of the um, challenges you face in funding your company or getting funding and your relationship with venture capitalists? And, you know what? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there and say you got to read Daniel's book because you your funding was sales. Your funding was your own bank account. Your funding was you didn't take a paycheck. We we uh, you 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 will enjoy the book and it'll tell you a lot of the different journeys, but. You're correctly, they, for good or for worse, it turned out really good for me because I didn't sell early when it would have been, uh, nobody wanted to invest in the company in the early years. Um, it tends to be that the investors want to come in once you maybe once you don't need, need them. them. <laughs> uh, that really is the case. That the, when, when you're just getting started, it's very hard. You need to rely on, on angel money, on friends and family. And you need to be careful before you ask for them. Crazy. Revenue. I think I did it wrong in that way. I mean, I got very lucky that it worked out for me, and then I didn't dilute myself early on. So now I own a, a bigger part of the company. But you know, it was a lot. In, in today's environment, depending on the industry, but in the food industry, it, it'd be harder to achieve what I achieved without some funding because it's become a very competitive industry. So um, you need to you need to be careful. Write a business plan. It's different from. In the book, I tell you how I did it, but it doesn't mean that I did that part the correct way. It turned out really well for me, uh, but if I were advising a, a, in the space of consumer product goods, an entrepreneur, or in any field that is very competitive, I would say write a business plan, be very, very careful, because if you're gonna go to friends and family or to yourself, do what I said at the beginning of the conversation, be very skeptical of whether you've got what it takes and the business makes sense, and, and don't jump unless you're certain that you're ready to stay with it and that it really makes sense and that you've asked, asked the tough questions from the people that are gonna give you the tough answers. And then, and then uh, get started. Um, if you are, Kelly's point is very valid. If you are in an industry where you can have a little bit of breathing room and you can just do it yourself, it's always the best way. If you can actually just grow through your own sales and uh, slowly, you'll figure out the kinks and then if you decide to sell a little bit later, you're gonna get a much better valuation because you're gonna have a proven business and then people are gonna be more uh, excited to join you and will pay more. 
But yeah. I think you should read the book because it has a but lot it, more details about that. And and because it is, it's, it's it. You you really put in there, and because I think part of it, and and it's to your question. So I'll put my take my moderator hat off and put my investor hat on. First of all, you had a good product, right? And this is not just me because I'm interviewing. Kind is great product. So as an investor, you're like, that's a really good product and people want this. Um, and the other is you have this persistent, tenacious entrepreneur who's, who's ready to go the mile. That's who you want to get behind, you know? Well, Ideas are a dime a dozen. That's what you want to get once behind. Once Kind had proven itself, then investors started calling us. But you're asking about the earlier years before that happens. And that's, that's where tough. the key question is. You, you, you need to have that stamina. So I think we got one more. We've got one last question. Hello, Daniel. This is Lamia. I'm a food entrepreneur from Morocco. I mean, the, we're trying to introduce. Sorry? Sharafna. Thank you. So my question is, uh, out of a sudden, we find kind bars everywhere. Like even like people selling cigarettes and they sell kind bars next to it. Tell <laughs> so me where. I'm going to stop that. <laughs> no, no, no. So how? No, this is actually great because it means that uh, you managed to get healthy food out there in mainstream channels. So how did that happen and how did you manage all the volume and the transition within the company? Yeah, a lot of people, especially people that had never tried a kind bar and suddenly they tried and then they start noticing it in a lot of places, they're like, wow, how did you achieve that magical overnight distribution? First of all, it wasn't overnight, it was 21 years of, uh, of You're that work. overnight success, kind, 21 kind, years. Kind has been in existence since 2004, so 11 years, and then counting Pizrox 21. But also, I have an awesome sales team who's just best in class, but the sales team and the distribution can only be as good as your product. The, the reason why Kind achieved what you described is because the marketplace is very efficient and the stores have limited space and they see that a Kind bar sells faster in that space than other things, so then they add more Kind bars. And over the course of those 10, 11 years, they start adding more and more Kind bars because we have in the, in the nutritional bar category, there's 2,000 items from all these different companies, big and small. And the number one best-selling item that turns the fastest is Kind. And the number two is Kind. And five of the top ten are Kind. And I think 12 of the top 20 or 15 of the top 20 are I mean, it's just that we have the fastest turning products. And so the stores end up giving us more shelf space. And then they talk to their friends. And it just happens. The marketplace is efficient. Now, of course, you need to have a best-in-class team that knows how to do it. And fortunately, I had people much smarter than me teaching me how to do that, uh, but, but the product is king. If the product has a good quality and meets the value proposition, then eventually it will find its way. And what I mean by product is king and, the, and meeting the brand promise is the most important lesson that I learned from my failures at, at PeaceWorks, and I talk a lot about this in the book, I, we didn't get to it today, is to know who you are and stick to it. And a brand, is a promise and a great brand is a promise well kept that's not mine that's something that i learned but that really stuck with me and a promise well kept means that when you're looking for a kind bar you're looking for something that will taste good that will be nutritionally rich ingredients that you, you know what it is and then you put it in your mouth and we we meet your brand promise and it's so easy 
to lose that way. It's so easy. It happened to me at PeaceWorks, where I started getting greedy and started doing a lot of things. And I didn't get a chance to talk about that story. But, but, oh, uh, it's in here. But, but, it, but, <laughs> but it's a funny story. But, um, but it, at kind of, every day we are tempted because of all those trends and the data and all those temptations to go. And, and you have to just stop yourself and say, we're going to stick to our principles and be who we are. Maybe there's other value propositions. Not everybody likes a product whose ingredients you can see and pronounce. Some people have performance bars that they just have, you know, a, a lot of uh, packed protein from uh, derived ingredients and stuff. And for me, that doesn't work. But there's a marketplace for it. But that's fine as long as they know who they are and they provide that to the person that is, uh, you know, that works out and likes that muscle right. building thing and doesn't care about. Uh, ingredients you can see and pronounce or taste, they care about performance, then it's a performance bar. And the bars that do well is they, they understand who they are and they stick to it, whatever that may be, because there's a lot of different tastes and uh, uh, there's opportunities for people to do different things. Figure out your brand and stick to it. I want to thank you so much. Get onto iBooks, download it. Um, lots of good life lessons, brand lessons, entrepreneurship lessons. Your part about the gut and the question from the back row, if you really want to know if you're an entrepreneur, read Daniel's story and that'll test your gut. Um, thank you, Pablo and the um, team here at Apple. Thanks to So everybody. appreciated being back. Thanks for thank coming. Thank you. Spend time with us.